single week doing that kind of campaign. No. Okay, let's uh, talk about physics. <laughs> <laughs> Why was it important for the energy eigenstates to be non-degenerate? Uh, because we assumed that the eigenenergies are non-degenerate when we divided by E sub n minus E sub m. If they were degenerate, then we we're dividing by zero. Very naughty. How would you decide how to perturb a potential, say an atom heavier than hydrogen, or any other example that shows how best to approximate a perturbation? Um, so <coughs> there are two things when you try to apply perturbation theory. You need to have a problem that you or someone else has already solved to be the unperturbed system that you have the solutions for. And then you need some small correction. And the way you tell whether it's small is you try perturbation theory and see if it gives you a small correction to the energy. So you have to use your judgment, using your vast intuition of uh, based on solving lots of problems with perturbation theory. You use all that knowledge and then decide how to divide Hamiltonian up into this is the unperturbed part and this is the perturbed part. Uh, can we use perturbation theory to have a square well with rounded bottom? So here's an example. So say we solved the square well, which you guys did. Now if I want to if I want to make the bottoms rounded like this, that's probably a small perturbation. So if you put in some little correction like that, you could calculate in first order perturbation theory the change in the energy. If you wanted to change it to this, then that might be a big perturbation. And it might the shift in the energy, the one of the levels might change by a lot, and then you'd know that your perturbation theory is not working. So if you wanted this, maybe you'd start with a harmonic oscillator. And if your wave function, if the state you're interested in is mostly localized here, then the fact that this is a big correction out here might not matter. But if you went to an excited state where the wave function is going over a wider range in the harmonic oscillator, then going from harmonic oscillator to this is a big correction again. So you have to use your judgment. Uh, how can we make a system unperturbed in the universe? Well, we use our imagination. Or in math language, we say we make an approximation. So we did the hydrogen atom, and we solved the spectrum. It gave us a pretty good answer. Uh, but we neglected a whole bunch of things. And we're going to look at some of the once we figure out perturbation theory, we're going to go back and look at some of the things that we ignored and get a better answer for the hydrogen spectrum. And some things will just, like the influence of Mars on the hydrogen spectrum, that's something you could calculate, but you probably wouldn't want to because it's a very, very small correction and you probably don't care. How large can the deviation of the Hamiltonian be to still get accurate results? So a rough rule of thumb is that uh, if you change the energies by 20%, then you're probably doing OK in first order. And then you check the next order, that the next order correction is smaller than that. So if it looks like it's converging and the first order correction was 10, 20, 30%, then you're probably OK. If it changed by 50% in first order, then it's probably garbage. So you can't, you can't really know for sure whether the perturbation is a small perturbation until you apply perturbation theory and see if perturbation theory works. I mean, you can have it based on your in vast intuition with solving hundreds and hundreds of these problems. You can probably make a pretty good guess. How would first order theory work with particle-particle interactions? So we're going to apply a perturbation theory to hydrogen, but I'm not sure. Maybe the question was about particle physics. So in particle physics, the first approximation is that particles just fly around and don't interact. And then they can exchange it a photon, for example. So that's the first order perturbation. 
this guy sends a photon over to that one and it gets absorbed. And then there are higher order corrections. So you can draw arbitrarily many photon exchanges between those particles. And the photon can turn into a positron and electron, which can turn back into a photon. So you can, uh, you can go to infinite orders in perturbation theory and have lots of fun. For electromagnetism, it usually breaks down when you get to 100th order in perturbation theory. So that's another story. We're not going to go that far. Uh, is there another way to deal with degenerate eigenstates? Yes, it's called degenerate perturbation theory. And we're going to get there. I was surprised by Griffith's statement that perturbation theory yields surprisingly accurate energies, but the wave functions are notoriously poor. These two statements seem contradictory. So part of the point is just um, the energy has a lot less information than the wave function. The energy is just one number. The wave function is an infinite number of numbers. It means there's an infinite number of ways you can mess up. So it's much harder to get the wave function correct than it is to just get the energy correct. How accurate are these linear order combinations? Is there any way to determine the accuracy? So in physics, the best way to determine the accuracy is do the experiment and measure what the real answer is and see if you're close. Um, failing that, you can apply it to problems where you know the exact answer. We'll do that once. Or you can calculate the next order correction and the next order correction after that. And if the corrections keep getting smaller, then you can be pretty confident that the accuracy is good. What are some examples of why we care about perturbation theory? Um, any problem, any real problem that you'd want to solve is probably not one of the list of things that we know how to solve exactly, which is pretty much the hydrogen atom. So if you're interested in anything beyond the hydrogen atom, and even the hydrogen atom, it's only the idealized hydrogen atom that solve exactly, as we'll see. So anything beyond that problem, or square wells or harmonic oscillators, you need to do something more. And usually that involves perturbation theory. That's the simplest thing you can try. If the perturbation theory doesn't work, then you have to do something even more complicated. What order correction is generally needed for an appro appropriate approximation? So that's something that you get to choose. Do you want to know the answer to 10%? Then you might be happy with first order. Do you want to know it to 1% or a tenth of a percent or a hundredth of a percent? It depends how big the perturbation theory is, how accurate you need the answer, and how big your computer is. Because you'll get tired of going beyond second order. You'll probably want to have a computer. OK. Oh, exam. So uh, how many people have another exam on Monday? How many people want to move the exam to Wednesday? Who has a really good reason why we shouldn't do that? Like they have an exam on Wednesday, too, or something else. OK. So that Wednesday was the original date, and then I changed it because I thought it would make our schedule work better. Change it back. Okay. Thank you. Has everyone uh, looked at the practice midterm? <laughs> so last time we counted. Uh, <coughs> how many different ways we could put particles into different degenerate energy levels for a whole series of energy levels. And then we calculated the most likely distribution of the particles in all those different energy levels for a fixed number of particles with a fixed energy. And uh, we did distinguishable and fermions, and you guys decided to take my word for it that bosons would work the same way. The difference is, in the three cases, there can be an extra factor down in this denominator. So <coughs> the most probable number of particles in the nth energy level is the 
degeneracy of that level divided by this factor, e to the alpha plus beta en. En is the energy of that level, plus j. j is 0 for distinguishable particles, plus 1 for fermions, and minus 1 for bosons. And alpha and beta were some fudge factors that we put in because we wanted to keep the number of particles and the energy, total number of particles and the total energy fixed. And it seemed like a good idea at the time to use the Grunge multipliers. So alpha and beta are implicitly determined by these equations. Um, <coughs> so given this number of particles, the most probable number of particles in each level, we sum up all those particles for each level, which is a function of alpha and beta, that has to be the total number of particles. And that number times the energy of that level has to add up to the energy. So these two equations tell us what alpha and beta actually are. If we solve these equations, then our story about Lagrange multipliers working was correct, because then the coefficients of alpha and beta in the function we maximized are zero, so the derivative with respect to alpha and beta is zero. So it was maximized. So to calculate what alpha and beta are, we have to know what the degeneracies and the energy levels are. Then we can calculate these sums, figure out what alpha and beta are. So let's, we're just going to do the simplest case. So uh, an ideal gas of non-interacting particles with mass m in a box. That's a good problem, because we've done it three or four times now, so we know the answer. The energy of a, a single particle is h bar squared times the wave vector squared to m. The wave vector is specified by some integers, so in the x direction is pi times an integer over the length of the box in the x direction. Same for y and z. And if we have, so we'd have to sum this over all the particles. But if we have a large number of particles, as we've seen before, we're going to approximate that sum by an integral. If the particle has spin s, then there's 2s plus 1 states for spin in each little piece of k space. So each state effectively has a volume pi cubed over the total volume. So if we look at the shell in k space, which is like momentum space, that's the absolute value. So we need, we can calculate the degeneracy for a state, for how many states have that same energy level. Since if k squared is fixed, then all, everything with the same value of k squared is the same energy. So we want to calculate how many states uh, have that energy. So we can approximate that by using a continuous shell. There's a 1 8th because we're only taking positive values of the integers. The area of the shell of radius k squared is 4 pi k squared. Thickness of the shell is dk. And volume per state is pi cubed over v. And there's a 2s plus 1 for the spin states. So we've seen this before. The only difference is before when we did the Fermi gas, we assumed that s was a half. So this number was 2. But now we're, it can be very general, very fancy. So we get something proportional to k squared dk. Distinguishable particles. And the reason for doing that is the integrals are easier. And you guys don't, well, you can't do the integrals on the board in closed form for the other guys. So the total number of particles, the thing that's supposed to be fixed, should be this degeneracy times that um, 
distribution we found. The distribution we found for distinguishable particles was e to the minus alpha plus beta times the energy. The energy is h bar squared k squared over 2m. And if we were doing fermions or bosons, we'd have 1 over the exponential with a plus sign and then plus or minus 1. So that's an integral you can look up. E to the minus alpha comes out because it doesn't depend on k. Now we can use this and solve for alpha. So divide by this stuff, e to the minus alpha is n over 2s plus 1 times b times this crazy factor. example, in this case, they're, they're independent of K, but they can depend on temperature. Okay. If we change the temperature, then these things will change. <coughs> so now we can do the same thing with the energy. We want the total energy to be fixed. Take our same degeneracy <coughs> for k squared, the same distribution of number of particles in that shell. And we just multiply by the energy for those guys in that shell. So we're just taking the integral we had before putting in a factor for the energy. So when we do that integral, we've got the total energy. And again, it's an integral you can look up. is that beta should be 1 over kbt. And to confirm that guess, we'd have to go through this analysis for all three cases and show that in equilibrium, if we put those things in equilibrium, we'd always get the same answer. But that's hard work. You guys don't like hard work, right? So we'll just, we'll just pretend that uh, someone's done that. Someone has done that. And we'll just take it for granted that that's what beta has to be. <coughs> and then we can, <coughs> given that beta is 1 over kBT, we can uh, redefine alpha. So people traditionally write some chemical potential is minus alpha times kBT. And then we can write this funny factor, e to the minus alpha plus beta times e. 
That's the same as let's call the energy of a particular state epsilon instead of we've been using E for the total energy. So alpha is minus mu over kBT. So if we write it this way, we can factor out an overall kBT, 1 over kBT. for the most probable number of particles with a particular value of the energy. It was proportional to the degeneracy of that energy. If we divide by that degeneracy, that will tell us the number, most probable number of particles with a particular energy at some temperature. temperature goes to zero, then this exponential will either go to zero or infinity. It goes to zero if the energy is less than the chemical potential at t equals zero, zero temperature. It goes to infinity if epsilon is bigger than that temperature. That means the most probable number goes to 1 or 0. Yep. Which one was blue looking at the Fermi Dirac one, you said? Yes. So if this exponential is 0, then we get 1 over 1. If it's infinity, then we get 1 over infinity, which is 0. 
So that reminds us of uh, our Fermi surface calculation. That's what we assumed when we calculated the Fermi energy, that all the states filled up to some particular energy and then there was nothing beyond that. So that's what this Fermi-Dirac distribution tells us. So this agrees that in that Fermi surface calculation, we neglected effects of temperature. This is just confirming that that's the right answer. So that tells us that for fermions, the chemical potential at zero temperature is just Fermi energy. or fermions, we have to put in, instead of the classical distribution, Fermi-Dirac or Bose-Einstein. So we can write that for free particles, free energy in a box. for distinguishable classical particles. I'm okay. just writing out what you would do for fermions or bosons. Okay. It's the same integral, but it's got h bar squared k squared over 2m put inside the integral. So it goes like k to the fourth inside the integral. So this is just the density of states. This is density of states times energy. Uh, but the downside is you can't actually write this integral in closed form of simple functions. So I wanted to do a cool application of this. So my cool application is just after the Big Bang, uh, there's a hot gas of stuff. It's got, if you wait long enough, there are protons and neutrons, and the universe is cooling. So the rate of the expansion, if I take the distance between, uh, you guys know about the expansion of the universe? You know that it expands. You can write the rate of the expansion. So A is some size of something, whatever, some imaginary measuring rod. So as the universe expands, A increases in proportion to the expansion. A dot tells you how fast it's expanding. And that this thing, A dot over A squared, is called the Hubble parameter squared. And Einstein tells you that's related to Newton's constant and the energy density in the universe. So this I'm just pulling out of the air because you guys never heard of General relativity. Yes? No? You've heard of it, but you haven't looked at the equations. The equations tell you that the expansion of the universe is proportional to the energy density. And now we know how to calculate energy densities, because this is a quantum system. 
why do we care about this expansion rate? Well, we want to check that our theory of the Big Bang works. How do we do that? You, what you do is you find <coughs> helium-deuterium-lithium um, that hasn't been processed by stars out of the universe and compare the relative fractions of those things to a calculation. Calculation, you use these Bose-Einstein and Fermi-Dirac statistics to tell you what the energy density was as a function of temperature. And the reason it cares about the, that energy density, because the energy density affects the expansion rate, exp the density, the expansion rate affects the density, and to form deuterium, you have a proton and a neutron, they have to collide. The rate of the collisions depends on their density. The universe is expanding really fast, the density is going down really fast. It's unlike, it gets less and less likely for them to collide. You can't make helium until you've made deuterium. So you have to take two deuteriums to make the helium. And neutrons decay in 15 minutes. So if you don't get the job done in 15 minutes, there won't be any neutrons. So the clock is running. It actually happens in the first three minutes after the Big Bang. So you, it's a very sensitive function of the expansion rate. And to calculate that expansion rate, you need the energy density. So the same thing applies, except because things are so hot, these are relativistic particles. So instead of non-relativistic energies, we have relativistic energies. So you can calculate that energy density, so divide by the volume, for a fermion or a boson will be some counting factor that takes care of how many spin states there are. And so we had k squared dk before, and then we multiply by energy, which is for a relativistic particle, is h bar kc. Does that make sense? You guys read about the black body spectrum, right? So to do the black body spectrum, you need to know that the energy of the photon is h bar omega. And the wave number pi over lambda is uh, omega over c. So omega is k times c for a photon. And that's true for any relativistic particle or ultra-relativistic particle. So we have the same, we can apply the same logic to relativistic particles. We put plus if it's a fermion and minus if it's a boson. And the, this is an integral that you can actually do in closed form. That's why it's a fun example. You have to write it in terms of gammas, gamma functions and even zeta, or even zeta functions. But those are numbers that you can look up. <coughs> so I'll just tell you the answer. It's got a 4 factorial pi to the 4th over 90. <laughs> Seven eighths for fermions, and times one for bosons. So when you take your course on cosmology, if you take your course on cosmology, they will just tell you the energy density for fermions has seven eighths in it, and you're supposed to go figure it out for yourself. But you'll remember back we took that back in quantum mechanics. Seven eighths comes from doing this integral. Plus one, you get seven eighths. With a minus one, you get one. So using that seven eighths, you can add up all the particles that we think existed at this time, a couple minutes after the Big Bang, and calculate the total energy density, including all the known particles. And uh, what you need to, what people didn't know when they started doing these calculations in the 70s was how many neutrinos there were. Do you guys know how many <coughs> neutrinos there are? A lot. Well. What we need to know is, 
species of neutrinos? Are there distinct neutrino species? Three, kind of. Yeah, three, kind of. So by measuring helium, deuterium, and lithium abundance, it only works if the number of neutrino species was close to three. It's three plus or minus 0.1 is what comes out of this big bang calculation. So in the 90s, people built a collider and were able to count how many neutrinos there were. What they got from left is 2.994, plus or minus 0.012. So three. So Fermi-Dirac statistics, Big Bang Theory, it all works. Or so it seems. At least it got the right answer. So doing the black body spectrum is just the same kind of calculation. We're not supposed to do relativistic stuff, but quantum mechanics started with the black body spectrum, so we really should do it. So we needed to know this these facts about photons. We also need to know that there's two spin states, even though it's spin one. So normally, a non-relativistic particle with spin one would have three spin states. Um, you'll just have to trust me that photons only have two, because that calculation that there were three assumed that there was a mass. Photons don't have a mass. So you have to do a new calculation. But you knew there were two because there's only two polarizations. If you take two pairs of sun polarized sunglasses and cross them, no light gets through. Those two spin states are the same thing as the polarization. We also need to know that the number of photons is not conserved. You probably knew that. Because there's light coming out of those lights. Those are photons. We're increasing the number of photons when we turn on the lights. So we don't have to have a chemical potential. The whole point of that chemical potential or that alpha factor was to keep the total number of particles fixed, which is a good approximation for non-relativistic particles. But photons, the number of photons is not fixed. So we don't need that thing. So we'll just set it to 0. So the most likely number of photons at a fixed temperature should be given by a Bose distribution, since they're bosons. So it's the same relativistic energy over kVT, minus because it's a boson, two because there's two spins. And we can convert that to the most likely number of photons for a particular angular frequency. So we just have to change, right, right, K is omega over C. Not too hard. So that will give us pi squared C cubed on the bottom, omega squared D omega, C to H bar omega over KBT. The only tricky part is that when people cared about black bodies, does anyone know why we care about black bodies? The reason we care about black bodies is that to calculate the, the color of something real, you need to know all kinds of details, like how light reflects off it, how light is absorbed. But if you calculate and you want to calculate it, that as a function of temperature. It's a hard problem that's different for every material. But if you consider an oven with a little hole and you heat up the oven, light coming in that hole will just bounce around inside and get absorbed eventually. The only light that comes out is the intrinsic light generated by having it at some temperature. So black body is an idealized thing to make our life simple to do the calculations most of the time. So the tricky thing is that 
traditionally people wrote the energy density in terms of uh, wavelength instead of frequency. So in terms of frequency, that energy density, we just have to multiply this number distribution by uh, the energy. So there's an extra h bar omega. So if we integrate that with the omega, we'll get the total energy. But people want to write it in terms of wavelength. So that means there's a Jacobian. We'll call this one rho bar. factor because we're changing from omega to lambda and we put absolute values because these things are supposed to be positive and this derivative is negative. So d omega d lambda <coughs> is 2 pi c times minus 1 over lambda squared. That's the big deal. from that and 1 over lambda squared from this Jacobian. So we'll go like 1 over lambda to the fifth. And that was the thing that Planck was trying to explain back in the beginnings of quantum mechanics. So he wanted to explain why for short wavelengths things uh, when lambda goes to zero this exponential gets large. Ultraviolet catastrophe. This is all ring a bell. You guys read about Planck, right? Planck? Planck? Black body distribution? Why people invented quantum mechanics? Um, and when he took 9D? Okay. <laughs> this was how quantum mechanics was people first realized that classical mechanics didn't work because it didn't predict this thing Planck fudged around and came up with some fudge formula H was the fudge factor you take H to zero then you get back the classical answer so there's an H here and an H here you take both of those H's to zero then you'll reproduce the classical result. But he introduced this fudge factor H, assuming that each oscillator in the black body only emitted a discrete amount of energy, H bar omega, for a given frequency. And then he was able to derive this formula. So is that need to be H bar C or is that KC? H bar C over lambda KBT. So if you differentiate this with respect to lambda, which is an exercise in the book that is fun to do, you'll find the most likely frequency that's emitted at a fixed temperature for a black body. And it goes like 1 over the temperature, obviously. So.
laptop's not working. Uh. So here's that function rho of lambda that we just calculated for different temperatures. So this is for 4,000 degrees Kelvin. This is for 8,000 degrees Kelvin. This is plotted versus wavelength in microns, which are also micrometers. But you can't say micrometers because there's something, there's an instrument called the micrometer. It's spelled the same way. <coughs> so between this red line and the blue line is where visible light is. This is where red light is. This is where blue light is. If you start at 4,000 degrees, the black body distribution tells you that you're emitting photons with all of these different wavelengths, and it's pretty flat. So you get something that approximately looks like this orangish thing. As you increase the temperature, the peak of the distribution is moving away from this reddish region over to blue. <laughs> so the color of your black body light will change from orange to blue. Does that make sense? You guys know that when you heat things up, color changes. So these are temperatures of stars, actually. actually. So orange stars have this temperature, and blue stars have this temperature or higher. Another cool application is the most accurate black body in the universe is actually the universe, or at least the microwave background radiation from the Big Bang. <coughs> so here is the measured uh, intensity versus wavelength. It's a black body distribution with the temperature of 2.7 degrees Kelvin. And uh, using that temperature and tells us how we can use that temperature to infer what the temperature was when the universe was smaller because the temperature increases as you run the movie backwards. And this is deviations away from the black body temperature. But these deviations that are shown are at the level of 10 to the minus 5 compared to the temperature. So it's these aren't error bars. These are just dots to show you what wavelengths they measured at. The error bars are less than 10 to the minus 5, so you can't see them. Eventually, um, these inhominogeneities lead to structures like galaxies and things. So these guys won the Nobel Prize for measuring that black body distribution. So black body distributions are very important because they lead to Nobel Prizes. Uh, another application of these distributions, let's consider a bunch of bosons. We know that the most likely distribution of the number of bosons with energy is epsilon. It's given by our Bose-Einstein distribution. And that had better be a positive number. There's no such thing as a negative number of bosons. That means this thing here, this exponential, has to be bigger than 1. If it was less than 1, then we'd get a negative number. That means that epsilon minus mu had better be bigger than 1, or 0. We need a positive. This, this has to be positive. It's a 0. And that has to be true for any allowed energy, single particle energy. So epsilon has to be bigger than mu. And we know for free particles, epsilon can be as small as <coughs> essentially 0. That means mu has to be negative. Otherwise, we'll get a negative number of particles for, some in for that low-lying energy level. So what happens if I uh, raise the temperature? have an integral over this thing, and that has to be a fixed number of particles. So as I raise the temperature, this denominator is getting bigger, but I need the integral to be fixed. So that means energy minus mu has to get bigger. That means mu has to get smaller. 
Sorry, mu has to get bigger. Sorry, let's go backwards. Let's lower the temperature. We're going to lower the temperature. We lower the temperature, then epsilon minus mu has to get smaller. That means mu has to get bigger. And eventually, it's going to reach 0, because it has to monotonically increase as we lower the temperature. And then everything goes crazy, which means we've made some approximation that we didn't know we were making. That happens a lot, doesn't it? Um, the approximation we're making is that we didn't worry about these states that had essentially zero energy because they contribute very little. What actually happens is that a macroscopic number of the bosons go into the lowest energy state. And so this distribution completely breaks down. When that happens, that's called Bose-Einstein condensation. Uh, and crazy things happen. So for example, in helium, um, if you make a tank of helium and cool it down so it becomes a superfluid, that's another name for this Bose-Einstein condensation in, in fluids, it will start to shoot out of a container and a jet. Or it can creep up the sides. If you have a wider mouth, it'll creep up the sides and drip down. And if you spin it, you'll get quantized vortices of rotation. Here's what I was trying to say before. So let's um, do a calculation. We take the number density given by our Bose-Einstein distribution uh, and change variables to some variable x so we can write pretty integral. That integral is, again, like that one we did before expressed in terms of gamma and Riemann zeta functions. So it gives you some num number 2.6. And the, we're calculating at the critical temperature where mu goes to 0. There's no mu term here at that critical temperature. So that means we can calculate the critical temperature in terms of the number density and the volume. And given the number density of liquid helium, you can work out by its mass density and the mass of each helium atom. You calculate that the critical temperature is about 3 degrees Kelvin. An experiment says it's 2 degrees Kelvin, which is amazingly good because we use this formula for non-interacting bosons, but obviously helium in a fluid, all those heliums are interacting with their neighbors because it's a fluid. They're bouncing off each other. So it shouldn't have worked this well, but it did. And we're over time.